Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and South Asian Studies, hosted by Thara and Yarya out of Bombay, India. We are in for a double treat today. Nabil Matar and Gerald McLean will both be talking to us about their fantastic collaborative efforts, Britain and the Islamic World. Gerald is a professor of English at Exeter University and Nabil at Minnesota and they've put together a wonderful book, Redolent of the Smells of the Bazaar and the Sea, of forts and souks from London to Tangier to Constantinople to Delhi. They are going to talk to us about how trade flooded markets across Britain, the Levant, the Persian world and South Asia with exotic products, disdained and desired by the locals in equal measure. Of course, it wasn't all coffee and silks. There were pirates, captives, and long stretches of anxious waiting in the courts of foreign potentates, never knowing when you might be seized and thrown into a bear pit or equivalent. People wrote about these too. Not that it deterred the many who set out from their native lands, hoping to feather their nests, as William Hawkins put it in 1609. So let's join Nabil and Gerald as they talk us through these fascinating lives. Good morning, Professor McLean. Good morning. Good morning. I hope that the weather there is nicer than here. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. It's, uh, thanks for doing this for the New Books Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you talk to us. Thank you. And uh, I can see that you've had a long career. And could you well, just tell us something about, uh, well, your academic work to date? My, my academic work today, I, about 20 years ago, I, I shifted. I had started out as a specialist in English 17th century poetry and English 17th century, mostly radical writing, the, uh, the way that print culture had impacted upon the political and social and cultural revolutions of the 17th century. Uh, especially, I specialized in poetry because there was a good deal of poetry written at the time that was engaged politically in ways that were not being recognized at the time. This is <clears throat> probably before many of your listeners were born. This is in the late 70s, early 80s. During that period, uh, I came to work on a project to do with the return of monarchy and the end of revolution in England, because it struck me that 1660, when the revolution failed and monarchy returned to England, was in many respects like what happened after 1968, the social revolution that I was optimistic of at the time. And that there was a great upsurge of a certain kind of culture that overwhelmed politics, if we can put it so crudely. Uh, at the time, uh, the joke among myself and my, my, among my radical friends was we wanted a revolution and we got the Beatles. Yeah. And so I noticed that in 1660, a good deal of energy was put into writing poetry about how wonderful a return to monarchy would be. And it became clear to me that there was so much of this that clearly a lot of people needed to be persuaded that this was a good thing. So I set about a project of working on how poetry was about legitimation of the political regime 
And during the, the work on that, I will get to the point, this is now about 1990-1991, I discovered that a great deal of the material made allusion to the Ottoman Empire. And as a young person, I had traveled in Turkey and discovered that Turkey isn't the horrible place that uh, many people think it is, and the Turks are actually very nice people. Uh, they're not the horrible people of stereotype coming from the Crusades right up to Angela Merkel and the rest of it. Uh, and this struck a chord, so I started working on how the English had understood about the Ottomans in the period after 1660. Poets would assume that people reading those poems would know who the Turks were, and many of the illusions were very obscure. It was assumed even by popular balladeers that their readers would know that in 1622, Sultan Osman had been executed by the Janissaries, that there had been these uh, parallels between events in the Ottoman Empire and England during its, its revolutionary period. So I began working on this material, and this led me to think I would write a book about English attitudes towards the Ottomans, after about 300 pages of the first draft, I was getting nowhere. I was still writing about Tamburlaine back in the late 16th century, so I gave up and said, right, return to Edward Said, and noticed he, he makes a very clear distinction over the question of citationality and the way that certain kinds of, of discourse generate themselves out of their own discourse, as opposed to what uh, we might call empirical or other kinds of evidence. So I, I thought that trick then is to write a book about the travelers, those who first actually encountered the Ottoman Empire. But some of this, some of them had been looked at before, but there'd been no systematic study of English visitors into the various regions of the Ottoman Empire in the early period, which is the period that the English were opening up trading agreements. Elizabeth had been excommunicated and so was looking to engage in trade with non-Catholic countries such as the Ottomans, the Moroccans, and there was a good deal of commercial activity. So I, I worked on that for a number of years, traveled to all of the countries that I thought were, were directly relevant, retraced the routes of the four selected travelers I decided to use as typical, um, and then brought out another book on studies of, of the same question of how the English represented and understood the Ottomans, but using some of the material that was citational that was running itself from its own discourses. It wasn't based on empirical first-hand evidence. It was a little bit more theoretical, but I, I tried to keep this uh, as, as accessible as possible, since, of course, the big story, if there is a big story, uh, relations between the West and the Islamic East at that time were not uniformly hostile, certainly in the period and this, this is a, a gap in Said, if you will, or a gap in Orientalism. It really begins with the 18th century, the moment of Western hegemony starting up. In the, in the centuries before this, the, the relations were entirely different. The Ottomans were the, the, the powerful ones looking over at the Austro-Hungarians and the Spanish. The Spanish were powerful too, of course, I'm not diminishing that, but the Ottomans were in power. So this is quite a different dynamic from in the later centuries to and I thought that was very interesting to examine. Uh, but as I say, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I wanted to get the message out that there had been uh, close affinities, alliances, agreements, encounters between East and West, not uniform hostility. Certainly through the 16th and 17th century, more Christians are killing other Christians, Catholics are killing Protestants, 
and in the Islamic world, Sunni are killing Shia, the wars between the Safavids and the, Tur- and the Ottomans. The, the death toll is greater, Turks killing Tur- uh, Muslims, killing Muslims, Christians killing Muslims, than Christians killing Muslims. So those kinds of facts, it seems to me, are very important to sort of try and get out and keep out. Um, and so I tried to sort of, you know, be writing, as it were, for a, for a larger market. Clearly, doing this work, I spent a lot of time in Turkey. I've, I've not um, become too involved in internal Turkish politics. It's not up to me to do this. But I've watched what's been going on for the last 20 years. Uh, so, in fact, at the moment, I'm writing uh, after the Britain, the Islamic world that I co-authored with the Mata that I think we're here to talk about today. Uh, I've already started on a biography of the current president of Turkey, Abdul Nagul. So I, I sort of shifted for the moment into, not exactly contemporary, but um, to the 20th century and early 21st century. This will be a social history of Turkey, a social political history of Turkey during his lifetime. So it's a, a political historical biography um, of what's been going on in Turkey since World War II. Um, where, where next, after the, the book with, with Nabil, uh, I have two things in mind. One, one would be, again, a biography of one of the early English ambassadors to the Ottoman Empire, a chap called Thomas Glover, who led an uh, adventurous, exciting, and in many ways unusual life. So this might be the kind of trade book that would reach a very popular audience, if I could write it properly. The other would be to pick up the question of travelers and to work on 18th century and early 19th century English travelers. The, the way the view changed of the personal encounter, the face-to-face encounter during the rise of the British Empire, which hasn't fully been worked through yet. And there again, some of the work in the 16th and 17th century might be informative. So that's, that, that's as it, there's a quick answer to your first question. <laughs> um, so uh, would you say that your work occupies the space between literature and travel writing and historiography? I mean, what do you think of, you know, the link, the connection between maybe travel writing and what we now see as the colonial project? Yes. Um, the travel writing came in as, as a side issue to me. I was certainly interested in um, various kinds of, of colonial writing, post-colonial writing. But as it were on the side, I, I think of myself as a, a 17th century cultural historian of Englishness, if we can put it that way. Um, so, so travel is certainly important. And I think what we tried, what Nabil and I have tried to suggest here is that the ambition, the, the colonial, that there's an imperial ambition, which is slightly different from a colonial one, operating in what we might call the uh, English. And by that, I don't mean English people, I mean the English language. This is going on in U.S. writing mm-hmm. as well. Uh, so, so in the Anglophone world, uh, it seems to me that in the 16th, 17th century, there's a specific kind of imperial ambition bound up with maritime supremacy. And one of the things we try to track quietly in Britain and the Islamic world is the way this very quickly started transforming itself into various outposts uh, and thus colonial ambition in the East. But the, 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 the mirror between what the Brits, the English were doing in the New World, in, in the Americas, is, is really in many ways a different story because they're dealing with what they thought of as relatively uh, open, available 
worlds of uh, primitive, savage people that could be controlled by the use of steel and so on, which has never been quite the same profile as, as we go east. So I think the, the ambitions for, for colonies and colonializing uh, take, take two different sort of directions. Uh, people have worked on this. It's not something I'm a specialist on. I've not worked on uh, people like Thomas Smith, who were members of the Levant Company, who then joined the Virginia Company, and you know, were thinking through the different ways of expropriating natural resources from people, uh, which is obviously different if you're dealing with indigenous people, such as uh, the, the folks in, in the Americas, um, who are living very close to the land, and then highly, I mean, of course, highly developed civilizations, but quite different from what, what we can recognize, even in North Africa uh, and, and further east. So yes, it's bound up with this, uh, but that hasn't that has not, travel as as such hasn't actually been a prime focus, and that would be uh, it was in that book. But the question I was asking is, how is it that travellers encountering this Islamic other uh, find themselves relating to a more powerful mm-hmm. world of uh, people who, uh, which is quite contrary to what Said expects us to find in the Orientalist paradigm. Um, so travel was important, but uh, I and, and I've, I've done a bit of work since in travel writing, but I still think of myself as trying to map the trajectory of notions of English national identity as it encounters the world. And yes, indeed, that becomes part of the ambitions, it seems to me, for uh, a kind of empire that is, is not in, initially about colonizing, it's about maritime possibility. Um, Although, having said that, one of the earliest ambitions uh, that Elizabeth had, so we're talking 1580s, 1590s, and we talk about this in the book, is a, a scheme between uh, Muli Ahmed in Morocco and Elizabeth to join together and to oust the Spanish from, the, from Central America, and British ships will transport Moroccans and various people the Moroccans will put together to colonize certain areas in, in the Caribbean. This never came about, but this was among the plans. So, so the question of, of specific colonization as opposed to empire building um, was indeed on the agenda, but I think, as I say, there are two specific sort of networks here to do with the old and the new that I haven't anything original or startling to say uh, about. So uh, the book, could you just tell us something about the book, you know, the book in a nutshell? Yes. Yes. Um, well, uh, at the time I was finishing my second book, Looking East, which are the, the, the studies of, of various writings about the Ottomans, um, Nabil and I had known each other in various ways. Uh, we'd met at conferences, we'd exchanged uh, research with each other. And we were actually at a conference together in London in 2001. And it occurred to me as we were chatting that what there wasn't was a good general overview of this early period when, indeed, the Orientalist paradigm didn't work and that perhaps uh, this could be written up into, indeed, a general book that would would appeal. And that that the two of us together uh, could cover very nicely with our expertise, various, uh, what we could call the Islamic Mediterranean. And we projected a book together that would be about uh, England entering the Mediterranean, which is an extraordinary thing to happen. After centuries, if you talk to Mediterranean historians, they say, why suddenly in the 16th century the Brits arrive? Every other nation that's relevant has already passed through the Mediterranean. 
So our initial focus was towards Mediterranean studies and Britain's arrival in the Islamic Mediterranean up to the point of the British Empire. And we floated that with a couple of trade publishers and eventually working with editors and so on, we ended up with OUP. Uh, big trade publishers didn't want it. They want global history and we were doing just a bit of it. And OUP, I think the, the conversation there rightly suggested that uh, we should at least take on the Mughal and Salafid empires and look a bit further east because the English were starting to move further east and track what was going there. And in doing that, um, I hope it's clear to readers of the book that we're not trying to write social, cultural, political histories of the Ottomans, the Salafids, and the Mughals, where all the varieties of Islam being practiced in those countries among those peoples. Uh, we are, again, very specifically talking about what the English-British thought, imagined, knew, could understand. So that there's, there's that focus. We're not um, trying to uh, say anything specifically about the, the varieties of, of religious faith and culture and society in the Islamic world as such. Um, but in, in, in taking on just even a brief glance, Nabil knows very well the North African material. He spent years in the Moroccan archives. Uh, I have many friends who work in the Ottoman archives. I'm not a Turkologist, but I have a, a good control. So we put those two together and then added on the Sabbathed Mughal encounters. And in doing so, you know, came up with a number of interesting ideas that we've tried to explore. One being that, of course, something we hadn't really thought about and hasn't been addressed is that the English meeting other Christians, Christians of the Eastern faiths, was happening in Islamic spaces. And it was happening all the way, shall we say, from Istanbul, Aleppo, all the way across uh, to, to, to Eastern India. I mean, there, there were these other kinds, these weird Christians that had been in diaspora for a long time. So that seemed uh, a new track that was, was worth exploring for a bit. There's also the question of this, what I've already characterized as the sort of, you know, development of, of, of the imperial into the colonial, perhaps. Um, a, a pure maritime-bred imperialism does, of course, open up in the Indian Ocean as English shipping beats out the Portuguese and takes over, and the East India Company gets its, its money and its wealth and power from simply shipping across the Indian Ocean. It's not doing much more than that after a while, or that's, that, that's where much of its, its wealth is coming from. So there's that simply maritime-based making money that we can attach to a certain kind of imperial ambition. Uh, but it's, it's, it's once the, the, the Brits start getting um, the thought of you know, having to protect their shipping that we get the, the, the garrisons and so on that would be impossible in North Africa uh, until later in the 17th century when Tangiers has taken over disastrously for a while. So those developments seem, seem very interesting because the attitude, again, within the Orientalist society, Orientalist frame, of attitudes towards the weaker or the more powerful are here at issue. And that there are, beyond that, that very simple binary, there, there, there are gradations because obviously the North African Barbary uh, groups, the Days and Bays, nominally under Ottoman, are operating quite differently from the Ottomans. They're operating quite differently from the various outposts in Aleppo. And by the time the, the Brits are dealing with, with folks hardly at all among the Sabbaths, but there's still negotiation going on. And that is one of very much subordination, that there they know they're dealing with, with a more powerful people. 
And the same is true when we arrived in the subcontinent, when the English arrived in the subcontinent. This is obviously a much more powerful civilization than anything going on in England, where people are still eating, you know, out of wooden bowls with wooden spoons and the rest of it. Um, and it's, it's interesting that there is, is and that that's the site where the thought of planting colonies in the East becomes, on the one hand, I suppose, a necessity because of the distance. Uh, and on the other hand, a, a real possibility, because uh, probably because of the maritime might in the, the Indian Ocean. So the, the, this question of the relation between the various regions that major trade was going on is, again, one we develop in the book, that on the one hand, most people in England would probably think of Muslims of Islam in terms of the still horrendous figure of the Turk, who is the pirate, who is the Corsair coming out of North Africa. More educated people would have some understanding of the Ottomans, little knowledge available about the Savathids, but some couple of plays, and very little knowledge about the Mughals. So as ignorance of, at home gets wider, um, various things are going on that um, have to do with, I think, the development both of, of British national ambition, imperial ambition, colonial ambition. Now, the, 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 the trick to the colonialization project is, I think, apart from at the theoretical level and the evidence we have, and there's a lot of that, one of the things that Nabil, in fact, um, a point he's made quite strongly, is that during that period, that's the same period, late 16th, early 17th century, the enormous number of records that were pouring in from the Levant Company and indeed the East India Company. And as these companies take over, the correspondence and records that they've kept still haven't been examined. And they do tell quite a different, often in minor ways, different story from what you get in the captivity narratives, even from what you get in the Traveller's Report. And that work, there are five PhDs need to work through that. I mean, the records are just too extensive make generalizations other than we would have a slightly different understanding if what the agents in those countries were writing home to England had been the popular public report. Does this make, I think I make, I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, you know, you have all these really diverse accounts and then, you know, people in different parts of the Islamic world and obviously they're in different situations, you know, in different positions of power. So, I mean, they all have very different accounts to tell. So. Do you think that, like, maybe after the period of the book, you know, when, let's say, Europeans or the English became more dominant, this kind of diversity in the travel accounts is lost, you know, it becomes more uniform? I suspect so. I mean, this would be one thing I'd, I'd wish to examine if that becomes the, the next project, that by the 18th century, certainly one thing that, that 18th century travelers, uh, I have actually, I, I've tried to stay away from Lady Mary Wortley Montague because she's so overwritten about. I mean, not overwritten about. She's a fascinating figure. But to try and say anything original, I think is difficult. Um, I did give a paper on her some years ago in which uh, I made the very simple point that by the time she goes, she is very, very much caught up in this Saidian citational system of correcting, engaging with prior accounts. And I think that's a key feature of what happens as we leave the 17th century the Ottomans have proceeded as a military force in Europe after Karlowitz in the 1690s. Um, and a lot is known because there's been all of the materials that I've been working on for the last 20 years have been circulating and are in print. So certainly for a traveler like Lady Mary, an educated 
um, aristocrat, if you will, knowledge about where she's going is there before you go, which is quite different. Now, that, that, that isn't to say that that, that leads to uh, or in, encourages imperial ambition, but it just changes the perspective of the traveler. If the traveler is traveling as she did for, I mean, she had particular reasons her husband was going, but she travels as a cultural tourist rather than as a diplomat or as a merchant. And I think there's an increasing amount of that, of a certain kind of cultural tourism, often bound up with trade. But, but people did genuinely travel out for scientific reasons in the 18th century. They're going out to examine flora, fauna, keep records of marvels of nature that can be found in these countries. Um, mineralogy is a big issue. The, the, the Russells in Aleppo were resident uh, traders, but they, they were also early scientists. So the, the Royal Society was encouraging travel. So the, the travelers had various different reasons for going. Um, in terms of the commercial trading interests, the, 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 again, the issues dealing with North Africa and the Spanish kept one set of foreign policy and trade and foreign policy engaged with, with, with those kinds of things. But the growth of the EIC, of the East India Company, um, I think is, 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 a, is a story better known by others than me. And I think that, that in some ways that's a slightly different story from the story of the travelers who started traveling east out of the Ottoman regions. Um, Increasingly, there are some, some fascinating accounts by members of the East India Company looking to find an overland route to India. So instead of going all the way around by sea, uh, mid-18th century, there again are some fascinating accounts. So these are commercial chaps, but they have their own pretensions to philosophical knowledge or cultural knowledge. So those, those, those accounts need writing. I have a PhD student working on it at the moment, so... I won't say much more. We'll see what he comes up with. Those have been little examined, and I think show interesting light on the way traveling across the desert with a particular imperial ambition, of course, which is why they're traveling. Um, these guys look at the landscape, look at the social organization. One of them is very good, or an argument that, 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 that Mohammed, my student, is working on, is the discovery that the desert isn't a desert space. It's a place where trade is going on. How can we exploit it? <laughs> there may be, you can look for 360 degrees and see no one, but the next day or meet a camel train and some kind of exchange is happening. The oases are places where trade. How can we exploit it? So the, on the one hand, there is that tendency to think in explicitly exploited terms. So the Orientalist, as Saeed would have it, mindset is very much kicking in during the 18th century, I think. Um, but partly that's, that's because prior knowledge, growth of power, growth of um, what the Elizabethans we could call uh, an ambition, an imperial ambition or a fantasy of Britain taking on the Spanish, um, is now very much the struggle in the Atlantic against the Spanish. And the English are winning it. I mean, they're, they're holding up. They're doing well. So, yes, they're starting to flex their muscles in the East also. And the EIC trade um, is going more and more powerful. And at a certain level, the, the use of, of British force in, 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 in the Mughal areas um, has proved successful and largely uncontested. They've beaten up the Portuguese and everyone seems, of course not, but you know, locals were not displeased to work with the English and the British instead of the Portuguese. 
Um, so I think, yes, there's a calculation there. I think these are not nice people, you know, mm-hmm. for the um, in terms of greed ambition. Um, you mentioned this thing that the locals were not displeased, you know, to work for the Portuguese, for the English. And again, that's uh, very much in stark contrast to later accounts where it's made out that they didn't really like this. So well, do you have any local... Yeah. Um, I mean, they, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of just the way certain, uh, what I understand, uh, certain you know, traders in, uh, in certain Gujarati ports were happier to deal with the English than the Portuguese. And this is the sort of thing the English report about themselves. Um, I'm trying to think back. Look, I mean, um, some some of the, the the viziers preferred the Portuguese to the English. Uh, Makarab Khan, I think, was a great uh, hater of the English early on, and could perhaps see that something nasty was going on there. I'm, I'm, I'm just sorry, just thinking in the very very general terms of the English presence. Um, you, you're thinking of specific pro. If only we hadn't got the. You say it's a period where I'm I'm slightly unlearned. Um, are, are there reports of, of why we wish the Portuguese would come back? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But that was something that I'm interested in. You know, my current work, it just looks at a comparative assessment of colonialisms across Southeast Asia. You know, like what the English, for example, sort of other colonial powers. So also I'm looking at local reactions to the right. European powers. So right. do we have any other like reactions apart from the English? What did maybe the Portuguese think of the Muslims? What did the French think, you know, when they traveled? Do we have any account? Well, we do. I mean, the, the big difference, I think, and it's one of the elements of early British imperialism that I think the Brits learned from the Ottomans, as opposed to the Spanish or the Portuguese, is don't try and convert the locals. Mm-hmm. So, uh, the Portuguese had missions, I believe, uh, to convert people to Catholicism. The French were always trying to convert people. Yeah. The Spanish are always trying to convert people. And one of the things that the, the Protestant British tradespeople figured out early on was don't do that. Much of one of the things they'd learned in their examining of the success of the Ottoman Empire was that you don't do that. Look at what's going on in the New World. They're slaughtering local people. They're devastating their own labor force. What's going on? I mean, these kinds of recognition, I think, were very much part of the way, I think, uh, the British imperial imagination develops in tune with its understanding of the Ottomans. Um, and so the, the, the Brits in, in, in Southeast Asia never attempted conversion. So again, in terms of local responses, I couldn't say because I, this is not my field, but I would imagine while obviously some people happily converted to Catholicism, um, there are a lot of people who would be offended by Portuguese attempts to convert them. Which the Brits never did, and, and certainly for the Brits themselves, that was one of the points of pride that we're doing something better. Which, of course, is going to become the full-blown. We're improving these people. It's become that horrible moral mission of the British Empire that fortunately hasn't yet. Uh, I haven't encountered it yet. My writers don't get there yet. I think that's the 18th century. Uh, maybe, maybe my historiography is wrong. So I think the, the, the British presence in, in Southeast Asia was distinct from, um, and I would hope um, can, can, can importantly be distinguished over that business of, of not seeking to convert the locals. Uh, but the English, them here. Yeah. 
but the english themselves they were definitely worried you know about a lot of maybe the traders the english diaspora converting to islam maybe adopting islamic cultural practices which you mentioned a lot you know in the book and yes. i find that very interesting yes again that that's yeah that that that's coming up um it's it's something that william dalrymple obviously has, has yeah. treated brilliantly in in in, in white moogles um this this fear suddenly that the new you know it's it's it's, it's a, in, in some ways this is the story of the east india company and the people running it and their own fears anxieties um and and world conditions the brits are becoming more and more powerful napoleon's you know about to get defeated or is you know on the run as we go into the 19th century and i think i think there is a move which again um dalrymple has has, has traced very very nicely that often this this comes about through a particular moment in in the history of, of well of the east india company when the the mentality of the the company itself takes over um and that's again specific to the east india company uh and its success and its power but um such things were again were never there in earlier periods so i'm 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 stalling a little bit in terms of your question um which is about um local responses to the british presence um still um but yes uh certainly uh the brits are not a benign the benign presence they would like to think of themselves as and it is interesting it 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 has started i think we we tracked the first use of military force by a british armed unit in a foreign that is to say islamic country takes place in the 1660 1670s it's a failure but there is a a, a military attempt and certainly there's that 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 militarizing of our own the brits militarizing of their own um trading posts is new and indicative of, of a certain kind of distance from and mutual fear of we don't find well it couldn't happen elsewhere it couldn't happen in north africa until tangiers and tangiers is such a disaster <laughs> um but you know the stay at home english and you know they had all these traders coming back and they had all these products coming in and you know as you seen the reaction was very different they liked the things you know but they didn't really they didn't always appreciate the cultural baggage that their own diaspora brought back that's right i think i think um what you suggested one thing in your question which is we've really got three different kinds of brits and or we we got <laughs> yeah. we've got those who stay <laughs> and continue <laughs> yeah those who go and grow rich and stay and convert and those who go get rich but come home and i think that that's still very much uh we did find those those structures within british society today god save us i mean there are any number of um folks living today who are living off of the accumulated wealth of a nation they've never visited so I mean, yes i think i think we're talking about um the large scale change to what it meant to be english if you were, again i i always go back to the beginning yeah. of the 16th century when people were insular <laughs> they were insignificant they were ignored they weren't part of the world system the french knew about them yeah. but you know basically they were an insignificant little island race they were the lilliputians in swift they were this like insignificant horrid little backwoodsing but, but but that 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 whatever that tells us the people that were local they were regional they were insular the entire movement of the 16th century as shipping as british shipping became more and more powerful and trade became more important and people started going 
because you get a fragmentation of what it meant, means to be English and, and new kinds of um, fragmentation within the social open up. I'm not saying that it wasn't fragmented before, but new kinds of fragmentation open up as you gave us those who stay at home and consume but dislike. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, you were talking about material. Yes, just continue. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I think material culture question, again, is something that probably needs a couple of young, enthusiastic people with their careers ahead of them to crack the whole uh, range and fabric of. There's a marvelous moment in Peeps when, as customs officer, he goes aboard uh, an English ship that's just come back from, from Malagasy, I think. And he says the whole, the whole, the entire hold was filled with black peppercorns. And he'd never seen so much wealth in his life. Black pepper as a drug <laughs> was one of the most valuable commodities. And it, it must have been like those Portuguese seeing the first galleon come back that had so much gold on it, they couldn't imagine what to do, so they built Lisbon. There were these, there are the, these kinds of moments in terms of material culture that are very difficult. Um, to, to play out the, the, the sudden sort of burst of excess that I think is going on in the larger period. In England, as, as for the book, we, we focused on those, those elements of material culture that we thought we could tell a story about in terms of the differences and kinds of differences that went on. Certainly, importations of drugs, spices had been going on for a while. Elizabeth could afford to have sugar. Uh, most people couldn't. Sugar was coming from North Africa. Um, what, what the increased expansion begins with, primarily, I think, in terms of volume and value, is silk. And it's that, that opening up of silk as something that, that people want, um, that, that becomes very central to the, to the whole uh, exchange mechanism of flow into and out of the Mediterranean. The English are buying their silks largely through Venetian merchants. They can cut out the Venetians by going directly to the Ottomans. Their deals with the Ottomans lead within 30 years to an enormous silk industry that's employing thousands of people. They're importing raw silk by the 1600s, 1610s, and machining it in factories around London, employing thousands of people. So in terms of uh, the kinds of impact that one commodity had, it's not simply that more and more wealthy urban women could put a bit of silk in their clothes. They're not wearing silk dresses yet, there's so lower middle class, the middling sort, they're slashing their dresses with silk. Um, and, and it's still a very expensive commodity, but it's becoming part of the industrialization of, of the British economy too, because such is the trade that they, they open up their own silk merchants, silk manufacturing plants and producing finished silk that then gets exported to countries like Poland and to, to Russia, to places that don't have it's going back in many respects. So, so at that level, the question of material culture becomes very problematic. It is not simply a question of the consumer, it's a question of also of the producer, and in this case, women working in the factories doing the spin. And it becomes a major problem by the early 18th century, as, as we tell, uh, cotton has come in because cheap Indian cottons have come, and it becomes the Manchester cotton industry. So on the one hand, there is uh, the, the, the big story of the, the, the consumption of tea, of sugar, of coffee, of silk, um, which are entering in and filtering through the, the social strata. Um, the opening of the coffee houses is obviously a big, important Islamic influence. And there are so many of these different aspects. 
that um, we, we, we partly told the textile story because I think textiles is, is the biggie. Um, but there, there are other edges to it. One um, I've, I've worked on my own perhaps more than in the book together is, is the business of aristocratic portrait collections that, again, tied to the, to the imperial de- uh, desire as, as certain Brits, certain English people are starting to think about themselves internationally. But looking at images of power, having collections, we're talking here about aristocratic collections in which, say, a dozen portraits of great emperors from throughout history would be commissioned and hanged in the, the, the state. Uh, we have inventories that show that most of the um, larger aristocracy had their own personal collections in their, their country houses or their estates, and that many you know, middling sorts, many new, uh, newly wealthy, find themselves knighthoods would aspire to the aristocratic status by also having uh, commissioned collections of imperial portraits. And the Sultan invariably figures in these. The Turk is one of the great images of power on display. And so, sorry, yeah. No. The the way the Eastern isn't uh, isn't always a bad thing in the early period, that the great Eastern potentate is a picture of power and to be admired and envied and studied. Part, he's part of the system of the ambitious. So that, that's quite different from the uh, shopkeeper's wife slashing yeah. and drinking tea. Yeah? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so once you put that against the, 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 the Manchester cotton mills of the, late, of the late 18th century, which is where we're, the story we're getting to, the whole material culture world, that is indeed, again, a couple of PhDs that one day was material. Um, yeah, what I found the most interesting was a section about the horses, you know, like we talk about the influence on the English thoroughbred. There's one incident, I think, in the 1830s when the English, you know, they wanted to make advances to Ranjit Singh. And I think they specially built a boat and they shipped out four English Shire horses and they, you know, took them up the Indus to give them to Ranjit Singh and he was fascinated, you know. So I just think it was a case of being fascinated by the kind of the queen stock that the party had. Yes. That, that yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Go on, sorry. Yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't realize that uh, the English were also, you know, this much into horses. I mean, with foreign horses. But I do know that I think William Moorcroft, he was the servant of the company and he was mm-hmm. sent on a horse sourcing come reconnaissance mission somewhere in Central Asia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, that, that, certainly that, that's the, the story of, of, of uh, equestrianism between Britain and the subcontinent goes right uh, almost to the present day. I'm, I, I, I lose track. It's certainly a, a, a bigger story of exchange, admiration, learning from each other. Um, in terms of tack, I know that there's still a, a lot of uh, horse tack goes on. There is a shared equestrian interest. The, the English equestrian um, story is, is really my, my partner, Donald Andrews' story. Um, but perhaps you ought to interview her at some point. Who's written yeah, we should be. Um, well, I can call this a come to talk to you after we're done. Um, the, the, the discovery that Donna's broadcast in her book, Noble Brutes, is that this still current English belief that the English thoroughbred is a symbol, an icon of Englishness, right? So again, we're talking about these imaginations of the self of, as a n- member of a nation and so on. As an icon, the thoroughbred is a very powerful across the classes. People may hate hunting, but they still recognize 
whistle jacket, the, the, the great painting, as, as part of what, what English meant. Um, and part of that story is that there were four that's been put about because of the thoroughbred regulations in this country to do with racing and the rest of it, that every pure thoroughbred must be tracked back through the registers to one of four Arab stallions that was brought into England at a certain time. And that story is pervasive and it's, it's factually important because you can't register your horse as a thoroughbred unless you can trace its blood stock back to one of those four. So it's a powerful story, but it is a false one insofar as, as Don has shown, um, throughout the late 16th and through the 17th and well into the 18th century, vast numbers of horses were coming in from North Africa. Uh, North African horses were coming in from Spain. <laughs> um, many, many stallions were coming in from the Ottoman Empire, which was illegal, but the consuls and ambassadors had set up you know, a quiet business in importing great, uh, famous Arab stallions out of uh, well, largely out of the Syrian areas, so they're coming out of Aleppo. And some of these horses were coming into England uh, from Anatolia, so they, they've got Arkelteki coming from the Circassian areas. So there were actually, there was a lot of mixing of, of new breeds and strange breeds and unrecognized breeds that went into the eventual production of what we now know as the thoroughbred, um, which is this great icon of Englishness. Um, so that, that, that in brief is, is, is the story of that book. I think it's, 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 it's a fascinating and important one that, that parallels nicely the sense that drinking tea is an English custom. <laughs> you know, what are these icons of Englishness? That they, they give us nice, thank you for bringing up the horses, they give us these nice endnotes to the question of how the English have defined themselves by, first of all, importing, then you transform it somehow and you reproduce it with a little, you put milk in it or you breed it with, as you say, a shy horse to give it a bit of, of substance. The thoroughbred is, was bred in England. This is, this is the case, but it was brought, it was bred out of more sources than is recognized, um, and has a lot to do with probably the importation of Arab and Bar and Anatolian mares as much as the great stallions who track the lines through the stallions, but the, large number of mares that was also coming in had a lot to do with it. So yes, and, and certainly the, the question of exchanges, of diplomatic and regal exchanges, where you would think records would have been kept, but we know of a number of horses, Arabs, coming into England that we don't have records for. I don't, I didn't know about the Shires going the other way. They must have seemed enormous. They must have seemed like small elephants. A great big Shire horse suddenly arriving. Although I imagine they'd have lost some weight on the, on the ship, on the shipping. I don't know. But uh, going back to the book, uh, what are your favorite travel accounts in the book? Which are the most outstanding ones? Oh, what are my, my favorites? Oh, heavens. Yeah. Heaven. Too many. Um, in, the, in BIW, I, well, I, I became fascinated with um, the embassy to Constantinople and Adana of, of John Finch, uh, who, who was important for, for many reasons. Uh, he was he was sent out as ambassador in the 1670s, and he went out with his boyfriend. And they're a, a famous couple of the period. They had both been academics in Cambridge, and they had a marvelous time. They loved it. Um, they travelled out to Adana, and so in terms of you know the, the the pleasures of travel, he was caught up in a number of diplomatic uh, disputes that he couldn't resolve. Uh, fascinatingly, given 
the continuities of problems. The big one was, of course, the Ottomans controlled Jerusalem and had in their power the relative authorities of the Greek Orthodox and the Roman Catholic churches. And this was something that the English ambassadors to the Ottomans were always interested in interfering in, anything that could you know, put down the Catholics particularly. They were less threatened by the Greek Orthodox. But Finch was engaged in trying to solve the problem or at least to uh, interfere in um, affairs in Jerusalem. So I, I, I think Finch, the story was told in the 20s. There's, there's a book about him and, and his, his friend going out Baines. Paul Baines died out for Thomas Baines. They were both scholars. Um, so I, I found for this book, working through, um, working through, I, I'd read most of these accounts in my travel book back in the early 90s. Um, I, I, I systematically read not every page by every diplomat, but I read through all of the published travel accounts, the manuscript travel accounts, and selected the four that I talked about that I used as, as examples in that book. So I was familiar with this stuff, but going back to it, found it much more interesting, and, and I read it in more detail. Um, there are a number of, and the, the rest of it, for this book was, was how different the experiences were. So it wasn't really so much a question of particular travel accounts, I think, that struck me as fresh and new for this, but the diversity. Again, the question of how um, people who, who spent, English people who spent time and wrote about life in North Africa uh, were really telling an entirely different story from those who spent time at the Ottoman or the Mughal court. Um, I did, um, I, I've always quite liked the, so I, I'll probably have to default to, to, to my own, to the book I wrote about the travellers and say my, my, my favourite traveller I think is still probably um, Henry Blunt, whom I wrote about in, in 2004 in The Rise of Oriental Travel, uh, who set out in the 1630s having, as a precocious youngster, gone up to Oxford at 14, um, was, had just entered the Inns of Court, spent a couple of years at the Inns of Court in 1819, did a couple of missions that we don't know very much about, and then set off very much with, with self-declared new science mentality. He was, uh, I, I've spoken of him as a Baconian insofar as I think he was very much interested in the Baconian project of uh, dismantling the idols of the tribe. Um, he's, he, he becomes a very religious person, but he's not an orthodox Christian in any sense. Um, but he's, he's very interested in, um, again, Thomas Brown is doing it. What are, what are the, the false beliefs that we have about the world? Is it the case that how, how could the Ottomans have become such a powerful organization if they were doing everything wrong? He wasn't buying into the religious argument that this was God punishing the Christians. Let's put it that way. But the usual answer, how can the Ottomans be so powerful? Well, it's God punishing us for being sinners. This was being preached constantly, right? And he said, no, this is all rubbish. So, so Blunt set out to see for himself. And he, he actually avoided the places that most travelers went. And he made, according to his own account, <coughs> excuse me, conscious efforts to sort of blend in. Um, so you know, he, he dressed locally. I don't know what languages he spoke, but he does seem to have generally got on with them. And um, he set out from Venice, so he didn't. He set out with a with a caravan of merchants from Venice. So he was mingling with a bunch of Jewish merchants going back, and they travelled in through what we would now call the Balkans. They landed at Split and travelled overland. So he went places other people didn't go, and and spent his early periods within Ottoman territory. 
as, as a, a traveler, a passenger with a caravan. So, in, in fact, his mode of travel was very much that of a certain kind of, um, again, cultural tourist. And his, his ambition was to see how it actually worked on the ground. And I think that was valuable. He was almost entirely, as far as I can tell, non-judgmental when they arrived and met up with uh, an Ottoman army in Belgrade who was, was going against the, the, the Polish. Um, he was invited in to, to meet the various Pashas who were running it. And, you know, happily reported that the Pashas going to the war, they take along their four best boyfriends, their pleasures, and they take along their six wives. These are the two top Pashas. These kinds of stories, you know, he's, he's very happy with cultural difference. Um, but, you know, a great general marching to war, um, right, has his boyfriends for pleasure and his wife to do the laundry and the cooking. Which would have been the sort of thing that other travellers at the time would have found unreportable. Uh, or they might not have been the kind of people who would have even known that it was going on. They would have seen the display but not been able to talk to people well enough. So, blunt by the kinds of things he tells us seems to have been, you know, the, 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 the idea, if you will, the ideal spy. I mean, I don't think he was spying. His book, when he came back, uh, and it was published in 1636, which is of his travels with, some, with a good deal of analytical observations in it, does get advertised or celebrated in a poem as being the best guidebook to future traders and who are learning how to deal with foreign, more powerful, possibly hostile peoples. Um, we get little tips, like when you're traveling with a, with a caravan, you know, check out uh, and find someone and give them a little money to tell you what's going on in case anyone's plotting against you. You know, have a, a colleague among the janissary guard when you're traveling with a... So he's full of little tips like this. Um, but I, I think he was genuinely open in his, in his attitude in ways... All the other travellers were, many of them were amazed and fascinated that they were still overcoming prejudices they hadn't prepared to, to, to think through. So I think Henry Blunt is, is, is possibly my, my favourite, I, I, I would say that. The best story is always going to be that of the young apprentice who took a, an organ to the Sultan in 1599. Um, the Rose story, which is uh, for, for people in the... the in, 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 uh, in Asia is probably the big story. It's, there's so much of it. I mean, Roe has been broadcast, and he's very difficult to pin down. I think there's a very, there is a very good biography of him, but he's, he's, he's very difficult to pin down. Um, Richardson, at the same time that he was writing, I think Pamela, not first, at the same time he was writing Pamela, was editing Roe's papers for publication. So he was very much part of the uh, way the English literary mindset was forming itself, and that seems like a, a, a good, interesting moment that you know Richardson is reading Rowe, even as he's writing about virtue and distress. I mean, it, it seems like a sort of Derridian; they'll never fit together. <laughs> but in fact, you know, they are utterly locked <laughs> um, in, ways, in the way British literature develops itself. And, and those the, those kinds of questions about. Um, I've lost the track now. We were, we were, I was, I was bringing Roe. Oh, travellers. Yeah. accounts. I mean, Roe doesn't really write as a traveller and left in vast amounts. And uh, there have been a number of, I think, bad books about him too. I think he's been uh, misunderstood, partly because he was celebrated for so long as uh, the father of British imperialism. Or the father of so I, I think, um, in terms of favourites, I think uh, if I had time and knowledge to learn enough about 
Southeast Asia in the time, um, Roe would be someone I would perhaps you know, want to you know, examine some more. Joseph Singh has done some very good work on him, but there are some you know, interesting at the same time. So I think, I think Rose, Rose is an interesting figure that hasn't yet, and, and Richmond Barber is very good on him. But t- someone needs to get the whole of Rose together at some point. Um, so you you had all these people coming back to England and writing about their travels and publishing them, you know. So what was the official reaction to all these like books and memoirs? Was there any attempt to censor them or something? Huh, um, not that I've I've come upon. Um, I think I mean the market seems to have been an open one in which uh, we, we we think that there are a lot of them. Of course, a lot more people went who never came back. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've, I've not come upon any, any censorship of travel accounts. Um, no, I haven't. That, thank you. That's something I should look for, inquire about. Um, the only case of censorship that, that becomes an issue uh, is the 1649 translation of the Quran. Mm-hmm. 1649 is, is, a, is, is obviously a crucial year in all sorts of ways. Um, as a you know, stable but insecure revolutionary government in charge and the rest of it, and they're about to execute the king, you know, they've got him on trial their mind is exactly um, the story of how the, the, the so-called English Quran of 1649 came about um, is still a disputed one, Nabil is, is certain that Alexander Ross did it uh, Alexander Ross penned the warning that appeared at the end of it saying read this at your peril um, but we don't actually know if we published it, we do know that the re- records allow us to know that its appearance became a problem in Parliament and that the printer and bookseller was hauled in before a parliamentary committee. The records of what went on in that committee aren't entirely clear. We don't have full reports. You know, he was called in on a couple of occasions. Copies of the first printing were, it seems, seized but not destroyed. Um, and within weeks, and again, this is just as the trial of the king is going on, uh, he's released and a second set are printed and published with the caviar. I haven't yet got around, and it's one thing I want to do, is to examine every known copy of the 1649, because they're all, there are at least four or five, if not more, different versions of this thing. Uh, and it's a bibliographer's nightmare or a bibliographer's dream, depending upon the kind of bibliography. Um, but as I say, that was a case of, of the Quran itself coming out in an English translation from a French translation. The French translation was generally available in England if you were able to purchase French books and read them. Um, but at, at the moment, I'm afraid that's the only instance I can think of of an attempt at censorship throughout uh, the period that I, I know, which um, gets weaker and weaker as the 17th century comes to an end. There may later have been instances of things that didn't get published for sensorial reasons. Um, there are unpublished manuscripts. Now, whether they were not published because uh, they were too Catholic, there are a number of unpublished pilgrimages from the early period. But I don't think they were not published because of censorship, right? at, at the level of uh, a state institution saying no. I think um, perhaps some of the, the, the Catholics who went out on pilgrimage to Jerusalem and other holy sites um, were, were simply not published because they weren't for publication. And I may be wrong there. I bet there's someone who, who knows a couple that were published. <laughs> but I, I know of some unpublished ones. And I suspect they were not published because 
Uh, the authors didn't want to just open it. And... <laughs> but no, I don't know of any. So, so uh, that's been fascinating. I mean, we've taken up a lot of your time. But uh, before we let you go, one final question: hmm. Where do you uh, where do you see your future research going? Right, well, as, as I said earlier, I think um, it'll either be a biography of this chap, Thomas Glover who was the son of a Muscovy merchant born in Istanbul, who grew up there, who became ambassador and was one of the ambassadors that, that upped the anti, making Britain the Ottoman great trading partner who led a fascinating life. Um, and or uh, a general account of 18th century visitors during the 18th century that will um, supplement work being done on Lady Mary and raise and perhaps address, if not answer, some of the questions that I failed to answer adequately here today. Well, uh, that sounds fascinating, and um, thank you for doing this for the New Books Network. It's been a fun interview. Thank you. So, Fox, a lovely podcast about British-Islamic interaction in the early modern world. Enough to wake the wanderlust in anyone and make them want to go down to the seas again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Goodbye.